Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon. Welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Gerardo Guadiana. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to be introducing our panel, Who Says No? a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Adam Silver and Bill Simmons. For those that don't know, Adam is the commissioner of the NBA. Bill is the CEO of The Ringer. Woo! Uh, the, the panel will be 45 minutes long with 10 minutes at the end for questions. Should you have any questions, you can submit them on Twitter using the panel hashtag who says no and Bill will be taking the questions that have the most mentions on there. And with that, I turn it over to you guys. Thank you. Welcome to uh, Dorkapalooza 2019. This is an honor to be here. I was at the, uh, were you ever at the ones at MIT? Absolutely. The classrooms, we've come a long way. I don't know how much Daryl embezzles from this uh, conference, but I think it's a lot. He's probably crunched the numbers. No doubt. Uh, Adam Silver's here. This is, this is the end of the Adam Silver decade. 2019, and you were mean? basically taken over in 2011, right? Uh, yeah. So it's been, well, it's, this, was I, ju I just finished my fifth year as commissioner, a little after 2011. The lockout 2011 to now. Right. Um, Wait, before we start, Bill, because yeah. I listen to your podcast, I want to do one thing. You ready? What? Oh, you're doing the, the Pearl Jam, I like this. This is how Bill starts his podcast. Yeah. Pearl Jam. That was good. We're going to play producer for you. That was good. Now you're comfortable, you feel good. All right, let's go. Um, let's talk about player empowerment, because as you know, I've been talking about this in my podcast, and I think this has become a really unique season where I looked it up. The all-NBA team in 2015, which was less than four years ago, of those 15 guys, 10 of them are no longer with the team that they were on when they made the all-NBA that year. We've had just a staggering amount of transactions, people jumping teams. It feels like we're gonna have more of that this year. When you had the lockout in 2011, and then you did the, the revised one later, a big part was the Supermax, trying to keep team guys in the same franchise. It seems like it's worse than ever. How do we fix this? Well, so we also, in that, in that 2011 negotiation, tried to accomplish something else, and that was to closer tie, to, to, to create a closer tie between play, pay and performance. Right. And, and maybe, as I always say, like the unintended consequences maybe are such that we made a mistake, but I think we shouldn't forget that side of the coin, that in essence, part of the issue is our own doing. We wanted to have shorter contracts. Remember, I mean, imagine. The league wanted shorter the contracts? The league wanted okay. shorter contracts. The players wanted longer contracts. Remember, Magic Johnson had a 25-year contract. People right. were forgetting. I mean, when you talk about player empowerment, that, and, and, you know, I read your whole book. You know, you wrote about, you, yeah. know, you know, whether it was Magic Johnson or, or, or Bill Walton. You know, I mean, it, Will Chamberlain was mentioned before. Kareem I mean, and Kareem, In the old days, I mean, for people who aren't aware, I mean, the guys used to have so much leverage, they made themselves the coaches. Bill Russell. Yeah. Will Chamberlain made himself the coach in the 76ers. Then he said, I'm leaving. Yeah. If you, if you remember. I mean, you wrote about that. And so where we were in the 2010-2011 negotiation, I mean, there were two issues. One was the macroeconomics, which we tried to fix because we thought, felt it was unsustainable. But then it was creating better competition around the league. And you know, if you look back on the first 60 years of, this, of our league, well, we'll go, start with the first, first 50 years. Two teams won 50% of the championships, yeah. Lakers and Celtics. And over the first 60 years of the league, if you add in the Bulls, three teams won 60% of the championships. In the last 11 years of the league, seven different teams have won championships. So in terms of creating competitive balance, I don't necessarily like the word parity, but in terms of creating you know, opportunity to compete, 
and, and I thought Casey's point was right on in terms of the changing dynamics of what used to be called as a small market, big market dynamic. It's very different. I mean, Russell Westbrook is a perfect example. Or, say, or, OKC has or, blown that out. Yeah. Or, or Milwaukee yeah. right now, or, or, or Victor Oladipo in Indiana. I mean, you can be a huge global star. That's all, wherever you are now. So, when, so we set out to make contracts shorter, which means putting aside the player empowerment notion, you now, as we go into this summer, 40% of our players will be free agents. Now, is that a good thing? Well, that's, I was about to say, maybe it's not. You know, I think our view was what we were seeing in terms of play on the floor, that we accept that we have guaranteed contracts in this league, but the long guaranteed contracts we thought, and I think ultimately the players agreed, were hurting everyone. Because if you're a player, and especially an up-and-coming player in the, in the league, and you're performing at a higher level, you want the ability to then go back and negotiate. And yeah. you want, especially if you're going to have a revenue-sharing slash cap system, and so the money is going to be divvied up you know, a set pool is going to be divvied up among the existing players. I think the players want, the good players, and I think ultimately the league wants the rewards to go to the best performing players, not to a guy who had the leverage to get a 12-year contract, and especially in a cap system where in the NFL it's very different because they don't have that issue of so-called dead money. As you know, in the NBA, if you have... As we, as we had before 2010 and 11, you'd have guys, nine-year contracts, seven-year contracts, where they were well worth that money in the early years of their deal, but yeah. because they wore down and they kind of can chart it analytically, they get to be 30-whatever, you know, and maybe their health, they're getting a, you know, they're staying healthy a little bit longer, but you could chart it fairly well. And so teams knew at the time they entered into those contracts that the player that was going to be worth the money, let's say, for the first five years if he stayed healthy and highly unlikely to be worth it for the next four years. But that also created a really bad dynamic on the team because it pissed off the guys who were performing and invariably making less money, and it wasn't productive money. So now, to your point about player empowerment, here we are, so players... We went with shorter contracts. Their contracts come up more often. And then they're in a position to say their teams. And maybe this was a mistake, and this is what's happening now. In the, when we modified that 2010-2011 collective bargaining agreement, because we had situations like with LeBron, like with Kevin Durant, where they left at the end of their deal, and the teams got zero value. Yeah. And whether the teams should have known and traded them, or they were misled, or they were just hoping that the player would decide to stay, who knows? And I don't know, but the view was, let's create an opportunity for the players to extend them early, and then if they can extend them early, if, taking the case of Anthony Davis, if he's not willing to commit a year early that he's going to extend, then everybody understands where they are, and that the team can either say, well, we're still going to go for it in that last year, or try to convince him to stay, or at least we know and we'll trade him for value. So that's, that's how we end up where we are. And like, I'm... I nicknamed it pre-agency, which I got from a listener, and then Jalen Rose stole it from me, and he uses it on TV now. But that, that came from my podcast, just for the record. Yeah, no, so, so and I get it. It's a, it's a bad dynamic in New Orleans. And I'm, I'm, I hear, and people in this room are talking and writing about it, and it's a bit of a mess, right? I, I, I think, though, the part that is difficult, I think, for me is that this notion that, all right, he said he wants to leave, and he's got a year and a half left on his contract, and therefore they should shelve him somehow because there's a risk of injury. And I would just say, let me pose a slightly different fact pattern. If Rich Paul had never made the public trade demand, and as often happens with teams, as you well know, there have been private discussions, and the player himself or his agent were to say to the organization, you know, we're in the sixth year of a seven-year deal. We know we have the ability to extend this summer. We're not going to extend and were highly unlikely to stay. But they had never made that public. Would the team, because of risk of injury, then the next day said, you're no longer going to play? And what would they have told the public? Right. So I, I think that the trade demand, as terrible as that public trade demand, as terrible as that is, and it's a bad dynamic for everyone, that's just a small part of the issue. And, I, and, and when I hear people say that stay out of a team's affairs, they should just be able to do whatever they want, Frankly, that's not how leagues operate. We yeah. have resting rules. We have tanking rules. I mean, that, that, and I think that my job, well, any individual general manager or team, they're doing everything within the rules to compete to win. And that's fine. And sometimes you could argue that they're gaming the rules and we change things because we realize they're ahead of us or they figure things out through analytics and we adjust. But current set of rules, it's their right to do whatever within the rules. But then 
My job, and I think sometimes people misunderstand this, I mean, it's a, obviously a zero-sum game in terms of wins and losses for our teams. So my job is to look out at all the other competition outside of the NBA. Yeah. And that's where, my God, the world is changing so quickly. I mean, you and I talk about it all the time. And the, and the, the last panel was mentioning it too. This notion that sort of the Pelicans are just competing against the Knicks or the Lakers or the Thunder, they're competing against every other form of entertainment out there in the world. And especially for this young audience, they know that more than anyone because they don't even subscribe to pay TV anymore. We're virtually yeah. where, you, where you have to go to find most of our games. So talk about the world changing quickly. They're, so, bar they're barely listening to us now. They're probably on Twitter. It's fine. But, but, we're over here. Come. But, but, but that's my, has to be my mindset. And you, you know better than anyone now running your own business. Yeah. Like, you know, in terms of the ringer, competing for people, for their attention, to listen to your podcast, to, you know, to click on your content, and at the same time, to do it in a serious way, where you don't become frivolous because it's just clickbait or whatever right. else, is a really hard business. And I just think for us, again, like just to keep my eye on the ball, it's that we're an entertainment product competing against an infinitesimal number of opportunities for people to yeah. do other things with their time. and so. And, and, and I freely admit, like, I don't like where we are, you know, with, I'm, I'm answering a question you didn't really ask, but I guess, you know, it starts with player empowerment. That'd be but, my third question. Right, but, but to say to now where we, are, we find ourselves in New Orleans, I'd only say, you know, it, what, what isn't being reported, you have a, essentially a new owner there in Gail Benson. Yeah. Right, who is, I think, like, doing an incredible job in a difficult circumstance because she knows, you know, assuming, Anthony Davis moves on, she's got to build a culture with her new team, she's got to build a basketball culture in a market where one presumably didn't exist beforehand, or at least for the, the, the last several years. Yeah. I mean, and figure out also at the same time, how am I going to get the most value for this player? Um, it's, and hire a new general manager at the also, same time. She didn't own the team two right. years ago and right. is learning all this stuff no. on the fly. Okay. You talked about last decade, though. I'm not saying things were better last decade. I mean, they were better for, like, my column because there were more contracts to make fun of. Seven, some of the seven-year ones were, were doozies. Um, and then things move faster now. I think for, like, what we do for a living, I, I've been stunned by how important the NBA is to us day-to-day -day now. Like, we, we launched Grantland June 2011, and immediately you had the lockout. And we were like, oh, shit, now what do we do? And I remember, like, I got hockey season tickets. And <laughs> I was like, hey, so I'm going to go to hockey games. Um, we, then you solved it. It was great. All of a sudden, all this transaction stuff happened. And from that point on, the league just every year has inched closer to being a 365-day-a-year league. And in my mind, like these transactions in this movement, even though it's bad for teams and for continuity and maybe for quality of play to some degree, it's great for your league. Like you're in the mix now 12 months a year. I don't think football is even in the mix 12 months a year. It, it, it's great to a point. I mean, and, and again, it's not some inside secret I have. I mean, on one I hand- I more for the business. No, no, but I mean, yes, but, but for an aspect of the business, like sure, I mean, this is an incredible number. There are a billion 500 million people on a global basis who follow this league in some form. Yeah. Whether it's a player account, a team account, a league account, um, you know, Nike NBA player account. I mean, so this is incredible global audience that's following this league. On the other hand, and this is something I'm reminded all the time by the team people, but don't forget us and don't forget the integrity of the competition. And I understand that. And, it's, and it's, we're always trying to find that right balance. So, I mean, you know, your point about all the, the, the chatter, it's sort of that old adage, like measure it in column inches. They're talking about you. Isn't that great? Yeah. But at some point I have to step back and say, well, it does matter what they're saying. And in terms of our brand, our values, what we stand for, and I pay a lot of attention to it. And it's, it's fine if people are, it's speculation you know, where's LeBron gonna go kind of notion. Fine, that's interesting and people can talk about it and have all sorts of theories. But it's not good when a player who's in the middle of a contract's agent shows up in a city he doesn't live and announces this player doesn't wanna be here. Yeah. And that's bad for the fans there. It puts the league in a difficult position because back to this notion of an entertainment product, I mean, I can tell you, I look at the ratings, the, the, the interest in that team is still going to be greater with Anthony Davis on the floor than not on the right. floor. 
Um, he is a top player in this league. People are playing to see, paying to see him compete. If we had said, fine, you know, somehow just shelve him, rest him going, going forward, the people who were paying money to see him may say, or who thought they were paying money to see him might say, I want my money back now. I mean, there's, there's two sides of these issues. I, I, I'd say what the, the issue that we haven't solved, and I think that, you know, listening to Josh Harrison, one of the teams he owns, of course, is in the English Premier League, is that in that league, because of relegation, you have to always be competing. I yeah. think what we're struggling with in our league is that I don't think you'd have this issue if, the, for the Pelicans, it was critically important they win every game. And it wasn't just about winning a championship, but it was critically important you win. They would be playing, presumably, one of their best players. But is that realistic? No, well, it's not realistic. I get it. With I mean, the that's, current rules. No, right, under, especially at an analytics conference. I, I, even with the changes in our draft lottery, I understand what teams are doing. I, I guess what I don't like as just somebody who loves basketball, Anthony Davis, it's not like he signed a 12-year contract, right? It was a, he took the money a couple years ago. He knew maybe this wasn't going to be a contender, but it made the most sense for him to take that money. And he's only in year four of a five-year deal. It doesn't sit right with me to just be like, I'm out. You got to trade me right now. Well, but like it, at least like ride it out to the summer. Give you, him one more chance. I, I be a top three guy. I hear you. And, and again, it's a terrible situation. But just for context, as you know, and again, you've written about more than anyone in the so-called old days, that same Anthony Davis situation would be followed by him saying, and I'm not going to play. This is such an unusual situation right. where the team is saying we don't want you to play. I mean, what, and even in my early days at the league in, in, in the early 90s, guys to hold out all the time. You hardly ever hear about players holding out now. True. I mean, so Chris that's whoever what, did that most famously. Right. right you know, th this is And guys would get drafted by teams before we had the rookie scale and say, I'm not going. You know, and they just, they'd hold out and ultimately they'd, they'd, they'd force trades to other teams. I mean, so this is a player who was drafted by New Orleans, is playing in New Orleans, extended in New Orleans. And as far as I know, and, and again, maybe there's something I'm not aware of, he's never suggested to the team, I'm not, I'm not going to play. It's true. He, he broke our rules by publicly demanding a, a, a trade, or his, his agent did, and then he followed up by saying something at All-Star, which he shouldn't have. But... I, I'm, watching, I'm watching their games. He's still, he's playing and he's playing hard. I mean, that's, that's where I get increasingly uncomfortable. And it's less, yeah. I mean, I keep writing that, I'm sorry, I keep reading that, you know, it's that we're afraid that the union is going to challenge. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, for me, it's less about, I mean, we work with the Players Association, we work with the players. It's less to me that there's a fear of a, of a lawsuit. It's that you have one of the best players in the league and this notion that, as I say, just go back to my fact pattern, had he not made that public, if, he had, if this is all about injury and he had privately told the team that I don't want to extend here, which I think we all recognize would be a perfectly legitimate thing to do and actually would be good information for the team to have as opposed to getting blindsided at the end of his deal, would they then at that point said, mysteriously to the public said, we're not going to play our star player anymore? Right. I mean, so, so that's, this, that's the difficult dynamic we're in right now. And I get it. I, I'm and reading these are the young guys, too. You're yeah, talking about I, a 25-year-old yeah, right. dude. And the people in this room, I mean, a lot of them I, are, are writing about this, and I get it, and, I, and I'm listening to the advice from people. But I don't, some things don't lend themselves to easy solutions. And I don't, I don't and, and playing him for three quarters and resting him in the fourth is not a good solution. I, I, you know, but... But, and, and maybe we'll get to a different place, but I think this notion, just saying to Anthony Davis, who also is making an enormous amount of money, is say, okay, you know, you said you don't want to be here. Even though you're willing to play, you just won't play. Have you looked at, like, with the Supermax and the Max Poor stuff, are there ways to favor it so that the guy just makes more if he stays with his team, if it's less of a cap penalty, if you're basically taking care of your best player versus if he just jumps ship and went somewhere else? Are there ways to rig this, or is that impossible? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't use the word rig. Well, what I <laughs> Yeah, no, but there, there, there's, no, but absolutely. I mean, I think I don't have an easy solution to the, to the, the sort of the facts at hand take with Anthony Davis, but I think there are definitely long-term solutions. I, I, yeah. And, you know, many of those people from the league office are in this room, you know, and, you know, whether, and Daryl, obviously, one of the creators of this conference, talks to, to us about these issues all the time. I and mean, we're, we're constantly looking for a better system. And as you said earlier, it is better than it used to be. Well, Daryl loves the current system because he keeps getting superstars well, out of it. But, so. but I would only say, and honestly, I, I mean this about great management in this league. You know, Bob Myers is here, yeah, Daryl's yeah. here. The great operators are going to do well in any system as long True. as it's a level playing field. I really believe that. But, but I'd say, 
say. But I think Daryl or Bob Myers at the same time recognize that this goes back to my larger point. As much as they want to win, this team is only, is only as good as the competition ultimately we're selling to the public as we're competing against all these other entertainment options, other yeah. sports options. And so, you know, we, we have a number of years now. We have a good relationship with the Players Association. And I think what's really is changing things for the, for the betterment of the entire league is there used to be more of a big small market dynamic where it was economic, where a player could legitimately say, even in a cap system, if I'm in New York, LA, or Chicago, you know, my endorsement deals are going to be X times higher than they otherwise right. be. And when I, early on in my days in the league, guys used to make more, the top players would make more in their endorsements than they did in their playing salaries. So I remember we talked a bunch of times during the lockout and you were explaining it to me and I was really mad about it. And you were explaining to me the small market thing and the attendance was at that point a real concern because the attendance was going a certain way. Right. Um, the values of the franchises had, I don't want to say gone down, but- They had, they, they had in a few cases. Like I the mean, Phillies said, what right. they got the, for the 76ers is right. now like an insane number. Bob Johnson sold Charlotte to Michael Jordan at a loss. Right, so um, as you look at where we're heading now, like that part's all great. Um, the league is in great shape. The interest in it is the great, is the best it's been. I'm really struck by how many of these guys seem unhappy. The, players, the best yeah. players in the league, like just how many of them are actually happy and how many of them have been in a situation where they just look at it and they go, actually, if I went here, I'm gonna be happier. And it seems dangerous and it's starting to turn into uh, kind of a merry-go-round. Chris Bosch was on my podcast recently. And he was saying it, it's just like what AAU is. And the NBA is becoming AAU. And these guys, when they're 11, 12, 13, they're just used to like, oh, I'm on this team this year. Now I'm going to play for my uncle. Now I'm going to go across. And, and those teams are being created around them. Right. At a young age, right. And they're getting like that feedback right away. Like you're in control of your own destiny. You can do whatever you want. Is, is, it, a, is it fair to say the NBA is starting to turn into that? There's, I think there's a few issues going on. One is a, is a larger societal issue. And I know you have a lot of young people who work for you at the yep. Ringer. Obviously, our, our players are young. We have young people in our office. I, I mean, I think we live a bit in the age of anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 I've read studies on this. I think part of it is a direct product of social media. Yes. Um, I, and, and I think those players we're talking about, when I meet with them, what strikes me is that they are truly unhappy. Yeah. This is not some, like, you know, show they're putting on for the media. When you get... You know, and you have relations with a lot of players. When I'm one-on-one -on -one with a lot of these guys, you know, I think to the outside world, they see the fame, the money, all the trappings that go with it. They're the best in the world at what they do. You know, they, they say, how is it possible? Like, they could even be complaining. And I, you, I hear this on television all the time. A lot of these young men are genuinely unhappy. I mean, some have come from very difficult circumstances. That doesn't help. Right. Some of them are amazingly isolated. And you and I have talked about this, that- This goes back to Jordan in the 90s. Right, it's not even the camaraderie that they were accustomed to. I mean, you saw some of the, um, the trailer or some parts of this film that we have from Michael's last yeah. year on the Bulls. I mean, the camaraderie was incredible. I mean, Michael, like what people didn't see was, I mean, he and, and Phil Jackson, obviously, as, as the coach deserves enormous credit, but there was like classic team building going on all the time. These guys were a band of brothers, you know, on the buses, on the planes, and, and all the attention only brought them closer. If you're around a team in this day and age, their headphones on, they're isolated, and they're head down. Like, as soon as, the, it used to be, I remember years ago, Isaiah Thomas said to me, championships are won on the bus. And he meant right. that, and, I, and I disagree. One of the comments from the earlier panelists was, oh, forget those other five guys on the team. Those five guys on the team were critically important. Even if they hardly had any minutes, all, you know, you know, usually they were veteran players. They were leaders who were able to take players aside in a way a coach couldn't, yeah. you know, because they'd lived through it. It was just something that a, a teammate could do that a coach couldn't, or certainly an owner or, or somebody, or an administrator in the team. And, and now, as you said, it starts much younger. These players, I mean, they don't have the collegiate experiences guys used to have where, remember, like, even for Michael Jordan, I was at Duke when he was at North Carolina. I mean, when he first went there, I mean, he had a early stages of fame, but he was a student on a college yeah. campus. You know, and he could make mistakes and, 
you know, have friends and do stupid things. And it wasn't magnified when Zion Williamson comes to Duke. You know, he's got his, like, he can compete with you for social media followers. As, oh, he as, beat me, I think, at this okay, point. Okay, yeah. but I mean, but coming into school. And so he's scrutinizing everywhere he goes, every party he's at, somebody's holding up a camera. Like anything yeah, he well, does. You use the word anxiety. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's a 24-7 thing with these guys where they don't know who to trust. Anywhere they go, they don't know if they're being filmed or if somebody's tweeting about them or taking a picture. They don't know uh, which women to trust, which friends in their life to trust. That's why I think a lot of them gravitate to people that they knew before anything good happened to them. Because they were like, well, I know at least this person was my friend when I was nobody. Um, but, but increasingly, there's almost time. never a period when they were nobody. These, You're right. are, you know, these, 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 especially the, the sort of lottery type picks, I mean, there, if you sit with Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, they know that cohort when they're 13, you know, and that, and not everybody's going to make it in that cohort of hundred players, certainly not are going to make top, but, and occasionally a player will break through yeah. six inches, you know, in a senior year or whatever, or it's like, wasn't playing basketball, but for the most part, they're coming up through programs. They're well known. And, and I only say like, so answer your, your, your question that, you know, in terms of what's going on in the league, you do have unhappy people and, and, and it kills me. And I think it's one of the reasons why, I mean, you know, we, you know, amazing courage from, you know, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan to come out and talk about these issues they're dealing with. And I think in, in side conversations I have with a lot of other players, I think what, what I point out to them, by no means, the fact that they're speaking out, that's not a signal that you need to be public in any, by any means. That's an individual player decision you want to be public about struggles that you have. But what that does mean is remember that as in terms of these issues you're dealing with, you can get help. Yeah. And, and, I, and I actually, what I think a positive thing that's coming from it, this is what I was saying before, it's not just unique to these players. I think it's more a function of their generation. I mean, not that our generation doesn't have anxiety and depression issues as well, but you're seeing, I think there are some real studies out there. I think it's showing, hard to be famous now too. Yeah, yeah. just showing these ties yeah. to, to direct connection to social media, to the isolation that comes with, and, and, and the bullying that comes with social media and, and every aspect that's part of it. And these players, I mean, anybody who says also, and you live it too, that the notion that you don't care what people are saying about you, these, no, these guys, guys are all on their Twitter guys, at halftime. At half the, and on top of that, their so-called friends are all over them saying, look what he said, look what right. Bill Simmons said now about you, whatever. And, and so, Sorry about that. No but, it's, so, no, but it's part of their lives. And I think what the really good news is, and you know, Players Association's done a fantastic job there. They've gone out and hired a whole staff of mental health professionals under this notion that maybe a player is going to be, feel more comfortable going to their union. Our teams are doing the same thing. The league independently has experts. I've said to players, don't trust any of those people. There's plenty of psychologists, psychiatrists in the world that you can have completely confidential relations with. But these are problems that can be, and issues that can be worked through for players. But you're right, it's sad. I mean, I, a lot of these guys, and that's why as these things play out, there's enormous fascination about it. But I think it's less calculating than a lot of people think. Like this notion that all these guys they all get together and they all want to play together. Most of them, as we're seeing now, the reality is most don't want to play together. There's right. enormous jealousy amongst our players. Everybody's I mean, got to be the offense. They have relationships. Yeah. The best teams, and maybe this is why the, the Bulls were so high-functioning, the, the Spurs teams, and the smartest coaches understand that. There's got to be a hierarchy. Or There's like this year's Celtics team. Great chemistry. They're doing awesome. Um, <laughs> well, you think about, when did you, when did you join the NBA? What year? Uh, 1992. So think about that class, right? The C-Web generation. And those guys came in, they're getting these huge contracts right away. And all those guys weren't happy with where they were. And you saw a lot of movement. You saw Marbury, Kenny Anderson, C-Web. The rookie scale comes in. And that was, I think, one of the most important things that's happened in the last 30 years. Rookie scale comes in. Now you kind of have to work for your first. And guys contract. show up, they go where they're drafted, yeah. they, they're there. A lot more business-like. And then now we fast forward to today on a positive note. I'm, I'm so shocked by how polished these guys are when they come into the league compared to where we were 25 years ago. Like you, you see somebody like De'Aaron Fox and it's like that guy seems like he's 31, you know? And all these guys know how to handle the media and they know how to navigate a lot of this stuff. And yet at the same time, going back to what we were just talking about, I do think there's a real loneliness in the whole thing because who do I trust? I'm on Twitter all the time. I'm on a bus with my earphones on. And I think that started in the 90s. And that's what the Michael Jordan thing, which we had, you guys filmed that for NBA Entertainment in 98. 
And I remember seeing that cut, I think for the first time in 2008. And it was just shocking how lonely that dude was. He had like three people in his life and he's just going from plane to hotel suite. He can't go anywhere, he can't go to the movies, he can't go to the restaurant, He was at anywhere. that time probably the most famous person in the world. Yeah, and he was yeah. just trapped by it. You know, I, I had a conversation with a, a, a superstar player a few weeks ago. I was in his market, spoke to him for a little while before the game. It was a, he was playing in his market Friday night, and his next game, they were going to fly after the game, and I think their next game was in Miami on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And he said to me, when I get on the, from the time I get on the plane till I show up in the arena for my game on Sunday, I won't see a, a single person. Yeah. I'm going to get to my room, and I Do will stay service. in my room, and stay in my room, I'll work out on my own, and then I'll go to the game on Sunday. And he was saying to me, you know, and, I, and he said, I'm saying it to you, we've known each other for a long time, but, and I know that if I said this publicly, people would say, poor baby, you know, like, yeah. oh, we're supposed to feel sorry for you. But this was a guy, and, and he has a family too, but obviously, and he's a good marriage. I mean, his wife's busy doing other things, he's not gonna travel with the team, and he's incredibly lonely, but to the point where it went, it was almost a pathology. I mean, it wasn't just, I'm, hey, I'm lonely, can you believe I'm doing these things? It was a, like a deep sadness around it. And I think also, just to further it, then you have issues, guys self-medicate, yeah. Guys can't sleep. I mean, it's the real issues that, that and, and I think I've started to say this before, that one positive thing, too, that's coming out of this focus on mental health in the league is now in our junior programs that, and, and you can see how quickly, because of the attention focused on these players, how you can change society around them, that in our junior NBA programs now and basketball without borders, the things we do, kids, like you see this next generation, young boys, young girls are part of these programs, too, that they'll raise their hand when you ask them general questions about how are you feeling? Do you feel lonely? Do you feel isolated? These things, like all of a sudden it's okay to talk about those things. So yeah. I think, you know, some, uh, uh, there can be a silver lining coming from this that we could, because again, I don't think it's unique to these players. I don't think it's something that's just going on with superstar athletes. I think it's a, it's a function. It's a generational issue. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved with my college. I see it, you know, with the reports that we get sort of on, uh, on the board in terms of, of, of the, the mental health and wellness of current college students. There's this incredible issue with isolation. And, and it's, well, and it's something, the, yet one more area where sports can really have an impact on society. And also there's more awareness at the same time. Like I think when I was like in college, out of college, you just you weren't educated on any of this stuff. And now it's like you're reading this stuff, there's studies, people yeah. are writing like that piece that Jackie wrote about uh, depression and NBA players in August, like Jackie's nobody was, was writing fantastic. stuff like yeah, that right. uh, in the mid-90s, and I'm sure a lot of those and guys you were, And you knew, I'm sure too. we all had issues in our own lives. Like, you think that's something, you, it's the last thing that you would talk to a friend about. You just, like, it was in your head. You didn't Well, think, what's interesting like, about you is you've become this person that a lot of these guys go to. And I, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, like, what your average day, you might get hit up by you know, any possible all-star or whoever, it seems like you've created this atmosphere where at least people can reach out to you. I'm not saying that kiss his ass. It's, no, I try. I mean, I think part of it, a benefit that, as you said, I started the league in 92. I worked at NBA Entertainment and the business side for a long time. And so, you know, at the end of the day, just it's a relationship business and you build these relationships. And you were around and available and there. Right, and I, and I think that, you know, it, and I have to be careful too because I, the last thing I want to, players to think is that I have a thumb on the scale that I w would rather them be in this market or that market yeah. so I got to be incredibly careful or and often and they're sophisticated but I might be talking to a player one day and disciplining that player the next day so you know it's um, it's being in these kinds of jobs are sort of unusual. But I think these are, as you said, these are really sophisticated people. And it's no different for our teams in many ways. There's a lot of team executives here. I'm in the same position. I could be, you know, Steve Kerr and I got to be friends first when he was a player, then when he was a broadcaster. Then all yeah. of a sudden he's a coach. It doesn't mean when he goes crazy and he's screaming at a referee that I'm not going to find him. And it's yeah. like, he, he, he gets it. He might be pissed off at me. And there may be periods where certain executives, we don't talk for a little while because they're upset with something I did. But everybody at the end day says, all right, that's, that's his role in the league. That, what's, that, the, what's the maddest you've been this decade? Who's made you the angriest? Well, Don, well in, in a serious way, Donald Sterling, no, yeah. no doubt, no doubt. But, uh, but I was going to make him exempt from the question because it's too easy of an answer. Who's the most non-Donald Sterling person that's made you the angriest? 
No, I don't. I, 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 I can't, honestly, I mean, it's not that I'm withholding. I can't even think. I mean, I, I, I'm, I stay pretty level. I mean, I don't, I, my ups and downs aren't what it's like being in a team. And I think that I almost have to force myself that way because team life is so difficult. I, I don't know about you, like, you know, I've made a few mistakes, you know, some. I've never made a mistake. Some, some, I was just saying, some bigger in my job than the public might realize. And I'm sure you've had that moment where it's you said something or wrote something or yeah, did yeah. something, and you literally can't sleep at night. And that yeah. happened to me recently, something I did. And then I start thinking about what it must be like for a player to miss that shot or for a referee to blow a call yeah. at the end of a game. And if people think that, and, and when you know you talk to, or the coach who, who's, who wasn't aware had lost some sort of court awareness at the end of the game and you know, called the wrong play or didn't put the right player in, whatever else. These guys are so tough on themselves that I, I, I think too, that I think in my role, like I, I, I never sort of want to sort of inject sort of that, that it's my anger, you know, that it's sort of about me in any way. And I think that I, it, I almost have to force myself to, to step back because when I, when I have those, those moments, I realize for those players, coaches, referees, others in the league, or a GM that picked the wrong player, it like becomes clear that like, how could you have drafted that player instead of this player? How could you have made that trade? You know, and, and that I'm incredibly sympathetic to them. And, I, and, and only to say that, like, I, again, not, to, not that people should feel sorry for them, but it's, it's a terrible feeling that they have. And that, that you know, to lose sleep, to, like, to, 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 to make that mistake on that big stage, that I, it's not about me being angry with anybody. I'm not going to ask you about tanking because I'm not sure there's a solution and you've talked about it a million times. I just want to get that on the record. I'm not ducking. I've written a million times about tanking. Um, I am interested in tampering because I don't think we've ever talked about that. And there's no real way to govern it. I had Kyrie on my podcast last summer and I was like, when does all this stuff start? And he smiled and he's like, it starts at the All-Star break. That's when guys start figuring out where they're going next year. I think... We knew that there was going to be tampering with teams. I don't think any of us anticipated this world where everybody was going to be connected by texts and DMs and that players were just going to be able to shoot each other texts. They'd be able to text Woj or Ramona or whoever. And it's this constant information flow that's flying around. Is there any way to govern that or protect it? You know, I, I, I said at my all-star press conference that I felt we had the tools to govern the kind of tampering that we're most concerned about, and the media response was a laugh, you know, a collective yeah. laugh that I had said that. But to clarify, I think, first of all, often, you know, what, what I get back even from teams is, why aren't you enforcing tampering rules in terms of player-to-player -player discussions? And I'd say, well, technically, we could go after that, it has been the league view and even prior to my becoming commissioner that player-to-player -player discussions um, are something that would be virtually impossible to police. And whether it's in-person discussion for one player to say another, wouldn't it be great if we were both on the same team? I think there's the reality that players can't trade themselves, that they can't make those decisions themselves, and that even if, and I'm not saying, and maybe in a new world we have to take a fresh look at that, but the notion that Two players like talking yeah. to each other. I don't other. think you can stop so, it. So, so there's that aspect that we're all, to, all, all. I'm often criticized for not going after, but I think at least under our under the way we interpret our current rules, we don't view players talking to each other as tampering. Now, if a player were to talk to another t player at the direction of his team, that would clearly be tampering. If a GM said to your player, "Look, I know you have a relationship with such and such. Go have this conversation with him. Find out if he'd be willing to do the following things." That's clearly tampering. And I think if we got wind of that, if we thought that the players were, in essence, agents of the team, that's absolutely something we would go after. And furthermore, if we see or hear of situations where a team is directly contacting a player, representative of that player, um, I do think we have the tools to police that. Having said that. There's all this sort of stuff around the edges of the guy who knows the guy who knows the guy who says, yeah. you know, I bet my guy would be whatever. And it's really tough. I mean, I, I think you get to a point where, and I think even as we, a league, as a league and as a conversation, we, you know, it, it can have collectively sort of with our owners, team owners and, and our, our team executives, which is, at what point is, is this the way we want to live? Because, you know, we could be collecting cell phones all the time. You know, we could be... You don't want to do that. No, I, and, and honestly, you don't, I don't think you want to do that. And at some point, 
that you sort of accept. I mean, maybe this is a terrible analogy, but if there is a 55 mile an hour speed limit, people don't get tickets for going 60. Maybe 66, 67. I mean, there's a little sort of notion of that out there. Or in that, the Lakers case, 105. Well, but, but you know, I'd only say in, in, in the Lakers case, you know, we've, you know, everybody told me, and even when we find the Lakers for conversations that have taken place with the representative Paul George. People thought I was naive, the agreement's in the drawer, it's already done. All I could say was we hired investigators. In that case, we did look at cell phones. We looked at everything and we, we couldn't at find- cell phones? Absolutely. Ooh. And we, we, and, and we only found what we found, that there had been some discussions. There was a fine you know, levied against the Lakers and we moved on. And the fact is, if there was that secret agreement, it wasn't honored because obviously right. he didn't, Paul George didn't go to the Lakers. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's like, and I know that you have fun with it. I listen to your podcast. I have a lot of fun with it. No, I'm just saying that's, and you're the sports guy and you know, you report on rumors and things, but I think it's, there's also this notion of due process too. And yeah. that, you know, there's, there's somebody has a rumor and if teams complain, we spend more time looking into things than people realize, but to a point. And, Again, can it be better? I'm sure. Are some, do some people, including some of our team ex executives, think that I'm naive? I get it. I hear from team executives who say that. But when I say, all right, so let's go. Give me the proof. Well, we don't, it's not exa we don't exactly have that. We just all know. And, and I understand that, you know, look, like that, that the only thing I can say is, again, just what I said earlier, I, I think there is this misconception that these guys are all in these secret meetings and if all they could play together, that's not the reality. And just look at the Lakers right now, if that's the reality, that LeBron is controlling the league. I mean, the, the, you have a team that's struggling, and he's struggling on the floor right now, obviously, to, yeah. to make the playoffs. And, and we'll see what happens. My question is, like, hypothetically, how far does this go? Like, let's say Giannis... Let's say a friend from Greece who he's best friends with starts an agency called Crutch and <laughs> becomes this super agent. And then a couple years later, he decides he wants a teammate. And, and I get a Greek sudden, translator. A Greek translator. And all of a sudden, he's trying to get Jason Tatum on his team. And his best friend from Greece is the agent. How, do you, how would you govern something like that? I hear you. I, you know, I, 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 first of all, in all seriousness, agents are governed by the union. That's under the labor laws, not by the league. I mean, so we don't have the right to certify, decertify agents. And I'd only say that the marketplace, I think, governs it more than people think. That players are sophisticated. And if a player for that hypothetical agency thought for a second that that hypothetical agency didn't have their best interest in mind, but were really doing the bidding for some other client, yeah. they would lose that player in that moment. And I, and I just think we're... We're all underestimating the sophistication of those players. Okay. They, they, they understand exactly what's going on. And I think that those agents have to prove their value every day. And it's a very tough business. And they have, those same players have a million other people whispering in their ear saying, that guy doesn't have your best interest in yeah. mind. You should Come be with way. me. How much time do I have left? Oh, great. I have some things to throw at you. As you know, I have some ideas from time to time. Why wouldn't you extend the trade deadline? Why couldn't it go to like March 15th? How much more fun would the league be right now if the trade deadline was at like the 65 game mark and there was still a chance Anthony Davis could get traded? What would be the negative benefit of that? That's a fair point. I, I, I you know, and part of these rules, you know, it, I'd only say that it, as you know, we earlyed it up a bit with our competition the committee. Jump all because what we were hearing from our teams is it was sort of destroying All-Star yeah. weekend and, and, you know, they'd rather have the certainty. I, th I think it's maybe a traditional notion that teams really do matter. They're not just a collection of players. Yeah. And that as you get ready for a playoff run, you should have some certainty as to what your roster is in terms of trades and then be prepared to go forward. I think there was also a notion, and maybe this is antiquated, that you didn't want teams dumping players towards the end of the season and that so that you now knew, all right, it's now, you may have one feeling about where your team is in February, but you have a very different feeling in March. Now that you see in March you can't go for it, you start dumping talent. Well, baseball's July 31st, which is basically two-thirds of the way through the season, so that would be like the 50 game, five game mark for you. But then they also had that second trade deadline on August 31st where if the guy passes through waivers, you can still push him out. And I do, I do wonder if that would make sense. I know 
the ringer would love it from a content standpoint because we would get one we more will, month. We of will take it under advisement. Yeah, so think about that one. Uh, Seventy game schedule. I know. I know you lose. Everybody loses six home games. Right. You have every player in your league basically. If you ask them what should the length of the schedule be, they would say somewhere between sixty or seventy. If you asked every coach in the league, none of them would say, "You know what's great? Eighty-two. I'm glad we do it this way." So why do we do it this way? Well, you know, my response, of course, is to ask those same players and coaches, "How do you feel about taking a twenty percent pay cut?" But could you make the money somewhere else? Could you make it up? It's it's a great question. I'd say. At least historically, the answer is no. That um, we're not the NFL. You know that where it's you know any given Sunday, and that it's serialized drama, and you have a shorter season, and every game has incredibly more impact. At least I, I think if you came way down in numbers, we would, we could sort of chart that. But I, I I mean we've done these studies. If we went from 82 to 70, it's called a 20% pay cut for everybody. Now and I've and it's those same coaches and players who say it to me, of course, have absolutely no interest in change, taking that pay cut. Now, in a new world, what I think the way to get to 70 games, and this is something we're looking at, that Ooh. it may be no, but it may be that the notion of an all-star game is antiquated. I get it. You know, we put another earring on the pig, so to speak, the draft, the selection, all that, and it even didn't work as well this year as it did the prior year. I mean, I yeah. think it's if you're there in person, it's a really fun weekend, I think, and it's a yeah. great gathering of everyone in the so-called NBA family. But the game is a bit of an afterthought. I think we, we, we all agree, and they play a little bit hard at the end. But, I, you know, it's, it's, I will say I'm always surprised for a younger generation, they're more enthusiastic about it than our generation because their response is, it's an all-star game. Why do people yeah. hand-wringing over not playing defense? Isn't this just supposed to be fun? But having said that, you know, I've talked about this before in terms of, you know, European soccer, for example, they play for a lot more than one championship. And this is a point that, that Daryl Morey has made to me several times, that to think everything is all about winning the Larry O'Brien trophy. There's one trophy to win. And it may be that it makes sense to say, have, let's call it a 70-game season, but then to have a midseason tournament where, you know, it's, it's the Stern Cup, right? And that it's meaningful. And we need to work on the name, I <laughs> the, the Simmons Cup. And, and, and that... That, but that becomes, and it's not going to happen in the first year, but that becomes something that teams really care so about. So you have all 30 teams. Potentially. Top and, two seeds get a bye for yeah, round one. Yeah, and it's single elimination, and, you know, you're playing for something significant. So what do you get? You get, like, line. a lottery pick? Well, you see, you see, that's the issue. In European soccer, it's not about getting something to help you win the bigger cup. That cup in itself is significant. And that's what ultimately goal would be. It's not just to help you win the Larry O'Brien trophy. This is a significant tournament that you care about winning. And that, that might, and so maybe we end up playing the same amount of basketball, but that the, that the long, a long regular season doesn't make sense, as, as much sense as it once did. Maybe there's a preseason tournament. Maybe we take all the teams and put them in different regions. We're in, you know, a group of teams are in Europe, a group are in South America, a group are in China, and they play tournaments and come together. I'm just saying, like, these are things we're thinking about in the league office because we recognize the world is changing so quickly around us. Well, you also have more talent overseas. Well, you could actually do the overseas I mean, stuff when now. you think about that, like, like, Luca, you know, yeah. Giannis, all the players we've been talking about. I mean, to think, you know, I, I was just looking at this, as people are writing a lot about Dirk Nowitzki and whether this is last season or second last season. I mean, I just read this. So when he came into the league 20 years ago, he was the only international player averaging at least 15 points a game. There are now, last I looked a week ago, 24 international players in our league averaging at least 15 wow. points a game. I mean, and 25% of our league is made up of international players. And that's going to keep... Flipping. It's going to... Just because it's just the math. I mean, to me, like, the future of the league is guys like Siakam. These, that's somebody that 20 years ago just would not have been in the NBA. Right. And now you might be able... 10 years from now, you might have 20 guys like him. Right. And, and back to your issue also about the whole AAU system. I mean, think uh, about Luka Doncic, who... You know, or, or or Porzingis. You know, these guys were pros at 16. Yeah. And and an academy systems coming up to there, and there was no pretense about what their goal was and the professionalism at a young age, just like there is in international soccer in terms of what it takes to be great. And I think and and look, if we, I think it's some. You know, we it's not a secret. We've made a proposal to our players' association about returning to 18. Not an easy issue. And I get it. You know, probably half our GMs are saying it's going to make the draft much tougher. It'll make it a little bit more random, as Daryl would say. So yeah, maybe that's good, less incentive, you know, to, to race to the bottom if you do that. But if we, 
if we go to 18, then at least in terms of that top cohort, we're not dealing with an eligibility issue for college. And I think we can get much more directly involved in youth basketball with the elite, we are in a general way now, but among the elite players and, and maybe help deal with some of these issues we've been talking about, about the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness and all that, and really help train them and prepare them to play on this global stage. And you, another revenue stream could be if you do that seven versus 10, eight versus nine, one game playoff, which I think is a great idea. It's a variation of the idea I've pushed for. You never listen to me on. No, I am. I am listening to you. I, no, we. No, I. And and presented by State Farm. I. There, there are members of our competition committee in this room who will vouch for the fact. I think I just ripped your proposal off and brought it right to the competition committee, and and haven't had any traction yet. But I think people. I think increasingly with the sophistication of the people on the basketball side, they're seeing what's happening in the business world. And I think again, it's that awareness of. Yes, you have a job to compete against 29 other teams, but that you also have to put yourself sort of in my shoes and see that we now as the NBA are competing against all other forms of entertainment. I think that things like play-in tournaments are going to be taken very seriously over the next few years. I think the biggest revenue stream potentially for you guys is the G League. And I say this not as a promotion of the G League. Like, you guys could just steal college basketball, I think, if you really wanted to. What you're spending on your G League teams right now is not that much. And... I mean, if you made a real commitment and you spent $25 million per team or something like that and you made it so that high schoolers could go right in and they'd have to play in the G League for one year and instead of going to Duke for a year, sorry, Zion would go right to the G League and play for the Knicks G League team. That, to me, is a real thing. I, I completely agree. And by the way, everybody wants content now, well, and that's like ESPN Plus just bought that idea. They, they're just giving you money right now. No, so, so well... Incidentally, the ESG League games are on ESPN Plus, but yeah, but, but I'm saying they're no, no, I get it, but but so they're wiring if, you more if, money. If we if if we return to 18, so for the elite of the elite, arguably will come directly to the NBA. But when they come directly to the NBA, as we move and we're at 28 out of 30 NBA teams have direct G League team relations now. It'll be 30 out of 30 very soon. So, arguably, as the G League becomes you know, better competition, you know, more sophisticated in terms of um, their resources they have available for those players, more players of those top players coming directly in the NBA will spend time in the G League. 50%, you know, this is something that might surprise people. 50% of all NBA players, current NBA players, have spent time in the G League. Yeah, Chris Middleton was a G Leaguer. 50% though. Yeah. I mean, so, so now when that for guys, especially young guys coming in, I think that where the GMs, the coaches are going to want those young players to get runs as players not just being practice players, but to, in game situations. Then you have this, this separate cohort of players who aren't good enough or perceived to be good enough to be in a two-round draft. And maybe the draft, maybe the more rounds could be added to the draft, but let's assume we still have a two-round draft. So then there's this next group of players who believe in themselves, want to become professional basketball players, don't think the best way to do that is to do it for free in college. And so we say, I'm going to go directly into the G League. And so those two different pools of players, I agree with you. And I think on top of that, in, in terms of the value of the G League, that with all the interesting things that are happening, one of the reasons that we're streaming G League games right now on Twitch, for example, and, and yeah. not just ESPN Plus, is the novel way those games are being broadcast. And I think, again, like so much like discussion here at this conference, but if you think about how our games are going to look now, you know, at five years from now, my belief is it'll be dramatically different, that it's one place where there's been very little innovation, that it's, that the games still for the most part, but for high definition, high definition, look essentially to the viewer. I mean, it's like that second spectrum thing you're doing tonight. Right, the second spectrum that's, thing that's we're doing cool. with ESPN, and that's a company that, I mean, credit to our team owners, that's something where when you bring in a technologist like Steve Ballmer, yeah. you know, he's an investor in Second Spectrum. He's sort of leading the charge with that company. He's using that technology in LA. We're adopting at the league. We're using it with partners like ESPN. We have that relationship with Amazon for Twitch. And I think it's like thinking about now with AT&T taking over TNT and Warner Media, the changes that are happening with Jimmy Patero at ESPN right now, the resources they're putting behind ESPN Plus. I think, I, I just say this, this is for you know, people in this room as well. The innovation is happening so fast now. I mean, like, you know, we talked about it at the Tech Summit at All Star. I mean, 5G isn't just 
a little bit incrementally different than 4G. Yeah, it's it's 20 to 100 times faster. I mean, what, what you know, AWS, I saw one of the sponsors of this conference, um, Amazon Web Services, offers on the cloud. Everything's going to change in terms of the sports experience. And if, 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 if we don't stay current and stay ahead of it, we're going to see a massive drop off. It's just, and, and what, I, what I love to see is what's happening right now in terms of our team values is that these smart investors are looking ahead in the market. I presumably they're baking in that we're going to figure out a lot of these competitive issues. Well, the, the part people are missing is the streaming in China, Africa, Japan. There's, there's no way, Africa, there's no way to even figure out how much money is going to be coming in 10 years from now, which is another reason to go to 70 games. Well, you're just listen, be I'm not swimming I'm, in cash. I'm, I'm not fighting you on that. I think the issue with 70 games is that despite enormous resources that have been put and, and, and science into the health of our players, there's no, I mean, of course, every time you, you know, if you've, each game you play, there's a risk of injury. But yeah. there isn't clear science that 70 is optimal over 82. In terms of number, I, of games. I would like it more just for the pace of the okay, season. Okay, well, and I think I'm with you in terms of pace of the season, and that's why I think again, notions of preseason, midseason tournaments, play-in tournaments, other ways maybe to have a schedule that's still relatively the same length, because our our schedule is much longer than the NFL's, for example. I mean, we're you know we're going we're starting yeah. the end of September, and if you're a finals team, you're going all the way to the end of June. So I don't think there's physically for the players, I'm not looking to push them further, but I just think, or harder, but I think we can rejigger the, the, uh, a season and, and make more excitement. I definitely believe Couple that. quick ones. When does Seattle have a team? Don't know. If you had to guess a year. Don't know. It's a great market though. 2024? <laughs> Why wouldn't you expand to 32 teams? You have more talent than you've ever had ever. And more it's, talent it's, coming it's, it's in. It's interesting. I mean, one is economically, you're selling equity if you expand. So to your point, it's hard to place a value on Africa, you know, ultimately China, India, et cetera. So one is, at what value do you sell that equity? So what if somebody comes in from Seattle and says, here's 2.5 billion and I won't share in TV for five years? It's not enough. No, but, <laughs> no. So it's, but, but, the, but, the, but the issue, so, so one, you know, there's, there's equity, but presumably you can figure out. Number two, there, I will say, I agree, it's amazing talent around the world, but isn't it, isn't it quite incredible that, unlike soccer, there's only one league in the world where the very best players dream of playing, and that's the NBA. I mean, there's great leagues right. around the world, but if you grow up in, you know, in Mumbai or Shanghai or, or you know, you know, in South Africa, you know, Johannesburg, your dream is to play in the NBA. Yet, how many difference makers would you say there are in the NBA? You mean like fran true yeah, franchise yeah. guys? Probably like 11. I mean, isn't that, I mean, whatever yeah. that number is, and I just think that, so if you're an existing NBA player, what, what we haven't cracked the code yet on is creating better competition among the 30 teams. And I, just one thing I want to respond to something Josh Harris said earlier. What I hate that question that comes from Jackie, which is, are you willing to spend the money? And that's a problem with our current system because that's where arguably market size still matters. It's not about the ability to attract attention for those players in that market. Yeah. But if you're in a market, and it's not it doesn't correlate just to size because, for example, some of our smaller markets do an incredible job and generate more revenue than some of our bigger markets. But this notion that, all right, you've got all these star players on your team, they're all going to want certain level contracts, are you willing to go sufficiently into the tax? I think that's an unfair position to put our teams in where the only way you can win is like to have a team the yeah, that, yeah. that sort of is, dis, you know, where it becomes diseconomic. I mean, I, I think that's something where the players ultimately should have the same interest we have. If it's a set pool of money and it's just a question of how you divide that money up in creating a system where that doesn't become the issue in that market where, you know, are you willing to be a, to be a deep taxpayer and lose money in order to compete. That, that's a fault in our current system. 32 teams relegation, impossible? <laughs> well, to your point, maybe if the G League becomes what you and I would like it to yeah. be, you could have relegation. Two-night draft. You just do the first 14 picks on ABC. You blow it out. I've, I've actually done that draft. I've been on the, on the set twice for it, and it flies by. You, have never, you never have enough time to talk about anybody. There's trades. We can't even get... Like, the NFL has 15 minutes between picks, which is actually probably a little too long. But why couldn't you do a two-night draft and put the first night on ABC, 14 picks, 12 picks, whatever, 
and then the second night is a little faster. It's the rest of the first round, second round, maybe a third round. You split it up. There's more money. It's, it's a I'm good. Just giving you, you money. Know, but I don't. You know, it's interesting. I, honestly, like I don't like in in our relationship with ESPN. They're gonna they pay us what they pay us. If they came to us and said, let's do it over two nights instead of one night, I would think of it more in terms of an opportunity for more interest. Less, it's not. You know, interest translates over time. I think money. it would absolutely. Have more. I think it's an. Do you, guys, do you guys like that idea or no? Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, I think it's an interesting idea. We'll look. Um, flipping free agency in the draft. I think this is a Mike Zarin idea. You have free agency, and then you have the draft. What happens with that? I, you know, that's one. It, I think that's too radical even for me. I, I, I hear Mike on that, and we've discussed that at the competition committee, and it's just then there's the whole other school of thought, which is you want to know what your draft is before, you, you, you know, that you want to know who you've drafted before you go into free agency. So that's one we'll look at. Um, oh, I had one more. Hold on. <laughs> and then I forgot it as I closed my thing. Oh, four pointers for the first three quarters. What's the downside? You know, I, I, this first is three quarters. This is a true story. So I, when we were talking about how to soup up the All-Star game a little bit, I went in, sort of still perceived as the business guy coming from NBA Entertainment, and said to the competition committee, which includes players and coaches and GMs, let's just in All-Star do a four-pointer. They threw me out of the room. Like honestly, the well, reaction was a half court. The, the, rea the reaction from the room what about a half court shot was, you know, that how dare you? That you know, this the the, the, the integrity of the game is first and foremost. We don't. This is not rock and jock for people yeah. of a certain generation on MTV. I mean, I think ideas like that are interesting. I mean, if you look back at how Red Auerbach responded in '79 to the three point shot, he frankly said all the same things. You know, a, a mockery of the game to have three-point shots. So I think we, th we should look at things like that. I think what we can't lose sight of, I think it's, it's always this balance between the fundamentalist, the traditionalist, and keeping up and making sure your, your, your game, your product is exciting and is continued to garner people's interest. And I just think it's, it's always on us to continue to, to, to be cautious and be deliberate how we do it, but also to keep up and make sure that we're focused on, on ensuring that, that it is an exciting product and it's not just a bunch of people sitting around, well, this is the way we always did it, so how dare you? If I give you a mulligan, you go in a time machine, you get a mulligan on any decision you did this decade, what would it be? That's my, a great Mike, Mike Bass no way said, out of this Mike Bass just said this panel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that can't I, be the answer. I don't know. I know. I, know, I, I'm, I don't know. You I, wish I honest, would handle no, summer 2016 be, be, be honest. Be honest I, like, I make so many more mistakes than people realize because a lot of it doesn't become public. So I, it's a long list. I'm not sitting here saying that. I mean, I have lots of regrets. I'm not one of these no regrets people. I'm, I'm an anxious person myself. I lose plenty of sleep over. That's why the players like talking to me. <laughs> or, like, or like, oh, you're anxious too? Yeah. <laughs> um, here's what I do when I'm anxious. Like, I have my meditation beads on. I don't know if you noticed. But so I, uh, you know, I, um, I don't know. I can't off the top of my head. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's been plenty of big mistakes I've made. Do you worry at all about, uh, are we wrapping up? All right, last one. Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> the, the ratings were down a tiny bit, but I feel like that's just because of habits of younger people. I don't. I feel like the interest in the game is stronger than it's ever been. I, I don't see any correlation. I think so too, and, and certainly we see it as a measure of social media. I, here's just an, another interesting um, stat. So from 2010 to 2018, among 18 to 34 year olds, and that's our core audience, it's yeah. an incredibly attractive young audience, their viewership on pay TV is down almost 50%. I mean, I think of you, you won't do it, but if you, in terms of the young people in this room, ask how many people, don't get conventional pay TV, cable, or satellite, a lot of hands will go up. And these aren't cord cutters. These are so-called cord nevers. These are people who aren't subscribing. So I think we're going to have to figure this out with ESPN, with now our new partners at AT&T and Warner Media, how the new world looks like. What's so frustrating to me, for example, we've talked about this before. If you were, and I listen, you had a great podcast with Jack Dorsey, the head of yeah, Twitter. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, what he was saying, even in terms of our league pass product, and he's a fan and he's a user, think about it. You're on Twitter. And you get a tweet from you or somebody else saying, there's, you know, Warriors, you know, Rockets, great matchup, you know, Harden's going for 60 points or whatever. The fact that you can't just go and get that game. Like, I, I think, like, all of us would pay for that content. Yeah. Pay a buck or whatever else, or you'll pay depending on how much, is, you know, you'll pay $3 if it's the first quarter, you'll pay a buck if there's only five minutes left. Like, that transactional friction 
has to be eliminated because that's what, you know, and, and I get it, we're being paid a lot of money to gate our content right now from ABC and ESPN and then from TNT. But what's happening is demand and supply aren't meeting right now. I yeah. know, we know from every bit of research we have from all the social media platforms, there's more interest in our product than the ratings reflect. But the problem is that for there's a large pool of audience out there for us that don't pay for basic cable. And so they therefore can't get it. And I think that's a problem that we'll be able to figure out over time. Wait till my kids' generation show up. They don't even know what time anything's on. Well, I don't know what happens with that generation. Well, and, and, and look, it, it's why. You know when the new Fortnite skin is coming out, though. But, but, but that's goes. My old guy in just, the couch comment. You know, you know one, one more sort of factoid before we break that in, I think it was in 2000, out of the top 100 shows on television, top 100 rated shows, 13 of them were live sports. Out of the top 100, this is back in 2000. Last year it was 89 out of the top 100 shows were live sports because exactly your point, like anything else short of news and breaking news, you're gonna watch whenever you wanna watch it. So that's great news on one hand, but it's also troubling on the other because you have to condition a new generation that 8 p.m. on Tuesday is 8 p.m. on Tuesday right. because it, it's, it's perishable. And unless we can create new products around our game, and maybe we can, you still want to watch it live and not know the outcome. Well, I have to catch a plane and get away from the Celtics team. Adam Silver, everybody. Thanks, buddy. That was fun. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.